Hello, everybody. What you're about to hear is part one of two episodes talking about the heist at the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where $8 million in irreplaceable artifacts were stolen over the course of 25 years. We are joined by expert and author on the subject, Travis McDade, in this tale of true crime. We hope you enjoy. Hello, audience. I hope you're having a great day. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got a fun show for you today. We're talking with Travis McDade. In addition to being an author and featured in the Smithsonian Magazine, he's a rare books curator and expert on book theft. So we're in really good hands for our tale of whodunit today. So welcome to the show, Travis. Thanks, Lawrence. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I uh, came across your piece and honestly, I can't remember how I came across it. I was doing some research for our shows for this week and I loved it. So, you know, I hadn't read anything from the Smithsonian magazine. Obviously I've been to the museums in Washington, DC. So I was curious. I, I saw the word heist and it drew me in, but I really loved the article that you wrote. I thought it was fun, unique. It was really well written. And uh, what I really liked about it is it weaved this whodunit tale into something fine. You know, it talked about our cultural heritage. It talked about antiquities and how institutions build and maintain museum collections. And so, you know, this is about the heist at the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, where $8 million in artifacts are taken over the course of 25 years. And so, Travis, to set this interview up, I wanted to honor the story craft of your storytelling in your piece. And I didn't want to reveal the thief's name right away until we announced, here's the big reveal. And so I want to talk about the cast of characters, but I don't want to reveal who the thief is right away to kind of build like you did in your article. And highly recommend audience to check this article out about a 10 minute read make yourself a sandwich we're all working home these days it's a great lunchtime read i think you'll really enjoy it so let me uh start with this opening question to you travis you know i did not know that libraries had such valuable items in them so why don't we start off with just the basics here you know tell us about the carnegie library and what types of collections are available for the public to view yeah that's interesting carnegie in pittsburgh is like a lot of these old libraries that are in old by american standards cities that just sort of over the course of their history have accumulated these nice collections that weren't necessarily nice or valuable when they got them, say, in the late 19th century or early 20th century, but that over time have grown in value. And we see this in a lot of American cities, particularly east of the Mississippi, where books just sort of found their way and maps and atlases found their way into these collections. And the Carnegie's like that. It also benefited from a patron, Andrew Carnegie, who uh, you know, was an immigrant to the United States and fell in love with his adopted city of Pittsburgh and so wanted to, to give back. And so he gave some of his collection and his friends gave some of their collections, again, in the late 19th, early 20th century to this really fine library. And, and it just sort of hung on to these really nice collections. And so that's how you explain why this public library has a, a rare book collection that would rival many, many uh, dedicated rare book uh, collections that are in, say, universities or other places that are known for their rare book collections, just right there in Pittsburgh, open to the public. Yeah, that's great. I, I had no idea. I'll definitely put it on my list of stops next time uh, we find ourselves in the Pittsburgh area. But uh, as I understand these exhibits, they have, you know, some uh, occasional visitors and regular visitors. So you tell me about the types of people that go to these exhibits within a library. Sure. So any special collections library generally has two types of visitors. You have the, the, you know, the, the scholar or the academic or, or the person who's interested in one aspect of the collection, either one book or one set of archival sources. 
And he or she goes there specifically to research that particular thing. Uh, and then you have the other type of visitor to a special collection, which is someone who just wants to see the highlights, who just wants to see the neat things. There are a lot of places in the United States that have, have these sort of blockbuster books like a Shakespeare First Folio or a Gutenberg Bible that has sort of learned over time that you get enough visitors who just come there to see that thing that they just put it on permanent display so that they don't have to, every time someone wants to see the Gutenberg Bible, they don't have to go back into the vault and bring it out and put all the wear and tear on the, on the pages and the binding. And they just put it on some sort of display. So there's these two, these two types of people, the people who go there actually to do specific work and people who go there just to see the neat things that are in the collection. That's great. I know that these types of collections can, obviously there's, there's a fair amount of investment that go into them. You know, you have these, these uh, very highly qualified people that will work at an institution like that. And so, and, and the, the Carnegie library here was, was no exception. They had some really well qualified or really greatly qualified people that were overseeing and curating this, these collections. And so, you know, tell us about these people, you know, security and integrity of the collection was very important to them. They were trained. So, you know, who, who are the people, what are their names and uh, you know, what were their roles and, and what were the anti theft measures that they put into place, even though sometimes they didn't work? Yeah. So if you have a library, which has as its chief goal to get information into people's hands, right? And, and you know, the mission of a library is to let people put their hands on books and archival sources and maps and documents and that sort of thing, either in person or digitally, then security is difficult. So, you know, you can take a certain amount of steps to secure this collection, but in the end, you really do have to let people have access. And this is a, a problem that libraries have that most other institutions that hold valuable things simply just do not have. And so in the, in the uh, late 1980s, the Carnegie Library decided to create this single room collection where they would take the valuable materials that they had accumulated over the course of you know, the history of, of, of starting in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century and put them in this one nice collection and then have one person oversee it. And the person that they hired to do that was uh, Greg Priori, who was from Pittsburgh, who had gone to school locally at Duquesne and at the University of Pittsburgh, both of which are right around the corner from the Carnegie Library. And he was actually from, you know, a few uh, miles away from where the Carnegie is in Pittsburgh. And he was working at the library at, at the Pen Pennsylvania room, which was this nice room dedicated to Pennsylvania history, genealogy, that sort of thing. So he seemed like the perfect person for this job. And in many ways, he was the perfect person, someone who, who loved Pittsburgh, loved Pennsylvania, loved history. He, was a, he had an MA in history. And so he was you know, perfect for this collection, loved working at this particular library. And so he was the one, along with some of the other folks who were there, who designed the security for the collection. It has a, has a single entrance that's important. You have a single entrance, one way in, and more importantly, one way out, so people can't sneak out the back. Uh, it had a camera that, that recorded the goings-on. When people came in, they had to sign in and, and you know, give the reason for their visit. This is sort of standard protocol in, in rare book and special collections library. People had to leave their coats and their uh, bags outside of the library, usually in a locker outside. And then there's the most important thing in any sort of security apparatus involving a special collection, and that is an attentive librarian. And so he was the person who walked with people through the collection. And when someone wanted something from the shelf, they weren't allowed to just go find it. He went and found it and then brought it back and set it down on a reading room table and then, and then let them use it. And then he would sit at his desk, which uh, was within eyeshot of the reading room table and could follow them while they did it. Now, obviously you don't stand over someone who's 
working with a book in a library, but you do keep an eye on them sometimes surreptitiously, but, but they know that you're keeping an eye on them. And all of these things in conjunction are uh, sort of add up to this, to, to about as good uh, of security as you can get in a, in a small library. Because ultimately when, when you are a library and not just a book warehouse, you're going to have to, to let people in. And, and in order to do that, you just, you can only do uh, so much to keep them from, from stealing. And that amounts to a lot of little things. And by, by the account, you know, he was very dedicated to the security measures there. You know, it's just amazing to me that people could walk in and check something out that was so old in some of the cases of, of some of these artifacts and then look at them in person instead of them being under glass. But I wanted to, uh, you know, fast forward just a little bit. You know, they had this great professional staff. And despite being very dedicated to uh, to security like, like Greg was, they had over the course of 25 years a lot of items that just went missing. But unfortunately, they did not notice right away. And so why is that? Why, why is a library sometimes not able to see things going missing right away? Well, there are a couple of things here. The first is, so as an attorney, I assume that you have a lot of books on your shelf. Um, I'm all digital I, now because my books are oh, too heavy. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, yeah. If you've moved too many times, of course, you get rid of your books. But, but at one point, you know, when you were a law student, you had books on your shelf. True. And if, you know, if I said to you, where's uh, your, you know, Prosser and Keaton on torts? you would probably say, well, it's on my shelf last time I checked, uh, but maybe it isn't. And if someone stole it from you, it might be a while before you discovered it was missing. And I suspect that you probably didn't have more than say 300 books. When you have 300,000 books and one of them goes missing, it's difficult to know it goes missing. And you know, there's three ways to find out that a book from a library goes missing. One is if the police find it and they call you and tell you that your book is missing and then you go to the shelf and confirm that it, it's missing. Another is if you want to look something up in that book or someone checks that book out or wants to see something in that book, then they go to the shelf and find it missing. And the third is if you do a, uh, a complete survey of the collection, which is ultimately what discovered all of these things missing, this complete survey of the collection. But those are enormously expensive and time consuming. And public libraries simply do not have extra person hours and extra money to to do those sorts of things. And so it was 25 years between the, the sort of comprehensive survey of the Oliver Room collection. And in that time, these things were allowed to go missing. The other reason that so many things were allowed to go missing without people noticing is that many of them were single sheet items. And so if you think about, you know, the Blau Atlas, this atlas from 1644, 1645 of hand-colored engravings, it's got 230 or so maps in it. And if you steal one map out of it, then no one's going to notice. Even if they go to the collection or even if they go to the, the atlas itself and look at the other maps, they're not going to notice this one map missing generally. So if you steal 10 of them, they probably won't notice that. And if you steal 20 of them, you know, if you're showing it to visitors, you can still show them the other 200 of these maps. And uh, in that way, a lot of these maps and photographs, these, you know, the lithographs, engravings, etchings, that were part of a larger collection, they could be allowed to go missing without anyone really noticing just because there were so many other of them. Well, Travis, building on that, I want to talk about some of the items that went missing over the years. There were some pretty iconical collections here. And so could you tell us just about a few of the most iconic things that ultimately ended up getting uh, stolen from, from the library? You know, the first thing I would like to start with is these things called incunables. Now, incunables are books printed in the first 50 years of European printing from 1450 to 1500. These are the sorts of things that are, are quite rare in American libraries. Some major libraries have a lot of them, of course, but for the most part, you don't find these 
books in most, uh, even major American libraries in any sort of numbers. And there were 10 of them that went missing from, from this collection, which is just astonishing to me, knowing how, I, I know how much libraries love their incunables and, and like to show them off and like to talk about them and how expensive they are. And that 10 of these went, went missing is just, is just sort of amazing. I mentioned the Blau Atlas, you know, all of the maps that were in there were all cut out. You know, this illustrated English uh, work called John Ogilvy's America from London, 1671, had 51 plates and maps. It, it was a groundbreaking publication. All of those were missing. You know, he had this Quadrupeds of North America from John James Audubon. All of the, or most of those had, had gone missing. It was sort of one after another thing from different eras, different types of publications. So, uh, you know, a legitimate book, Newton's Principia Mathematica, which was it was just a book and obviously not not just these single sheet items that was missing and that's a that's a big deal too not not many libraries have that it, it just there was no century and no type of publication that was spared it just seemed like all of the really terrific works from this library over the course of 25 years just simply disappeared well, and you got into this a little bit earlier about uh, when this was, uh, when the discovery process of these missing items started to take place. But, uh, you know, there's a how component of it. And so, you know, when, when and how did people start to notice that these things uh, were missing? What, what cued in, you know, people to start looking at an audit as the next logical step to protect the collections? Well, in the fall of 2016 was the first time that the the higher level administration at the library started to talk about doing this audit because it had been almost 25 years since the audit of the collection had been done. And in that, in the course of that time, obviously uh, certain types of books, particularly the types of books in the Oliver Room, had gained value, and so the library wanted to know in you know how much value had increased in this collection if there were any other sort of jewels in this collection that they could highlight and tell people about. Uh, libraries are into marketing just like any other place, of course, and they want patrons to come in. And so knowing what nice things you have in the collection that you can show off to people, that you can bring people in on tours explicitly to show is important, is an important part of the library's profile. And so they decided to do this audit of this collection it took about six months or so between when they talked about it as a group, including uh, telling Greg Priori, and before the the it's the Paul Mall art advisors, the people who did the collection, before they came in in early April of 2017. So an institution begins to come into play here, a member of the community. Uh, uh, we hope you're enjoying this episode about the heist at the Carnegie Library. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when we venture into the whodunit part of this caper that took place over 25 years. Until then, have a great day, everybody.